Hello, friends, and welcome to There's No People Like Show People, the podcast that connects and reconnects the theater community, inspires hope, and strives to help people not feel so alone. I am your host, Sarah Philobom. Twenty twenty two. New year, new you. Welcome back, friends. You know, I started this podcast back in 2020 and have since moved to the other side of the country, became a single mother, taught dance classes, directed and choreographed a whole bunch of shows, and now I'm applying to grad schools. It just goes to show that where there's a will, there's always a way. I can't thank you enough for listening and continuing to support us. Please visit our official merchandise store at there's no people like show people.itemorder.com. Again, that's all one word. There's no people like show people.itemorder.com. Each purchase really helps us out and continues to celebrate the resilience of the theater community. You know, at the end of the day, I'm just a hardworking mom, courageously fighting to keep her career in the arts alive in these very uncertain times. And this podcast is just one example of how much honest storytelling saves lives and changes the world. I hope the new year brings you much clarity, comfort, joy, love, and peace. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back, friends. You know, before I start recording these podcast episodes, I always put my phone on airplane mode because I record on my computer and I also record on my phone as a backup, which is very smart because it's always good to have a backup plan, a plan B. You just never know what life is going to throw at you. So it's kind of cool because for the next hour of time, it's almost as if the, the outside world just doesn't exist. So it really is a moment and a lesson in presence and just having a nice, honest conversation with my guests. I am so pleased to introduce you today to a very fascinating human being. He is filled with lots of stories. I, you are going to love listening to him talk because the things that come out of his mouth, I'm like, more. I'm like, tell me more. Please elaborate. So now we are finally sitting down to record. He is the Director of Arts and Humanities at the Y Arts Center here in downtown Frederick. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony Brock. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Just getting over Christmas. We're at midweek before New Year's and looking <laughs> forward to 2022. Yeah, do you have any New Year's resolutions? I have, I've learned to keep my resolutions very modest. I used to have <laughs> large resolutions when I was young, big ambitious plans, things I wanted to achieve that would go by the wayside. So about 20 years ago, someone said, it was an elderly person that I knew, said, just make your New Year's resolutions really basic. Like, and I said, like, what, like, I'm going to eat you know, I'm not going to eat meat this year, something like that. Mm -hmm. So the resolution that I'm having this year, I have to think about it right now because I haven't made one. But in this moment, I want my resolution to eat more salads. Because mm. I really mm. like salads, 
I always, and I enjoy salads, but when I go to a restaurant, I always feel like I have to get an entree. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, why do I have to get an entree? Just get the salad. So when I go to restaurants this year, I've set a, made a commitment just to get salads. The we, big salads, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe a soup on the side. But, but, yeah. but I, so I keep my resolutions very small. I feel like we, I, that is also a resolution of mine is to eat more vegetables yep. because they are good for you and they make you feel good yes. when you eat the, the way that you're supposed to eat. Absolutely. And don't eat a bunch of junk. Yes. Yep. So that's one of my resolutions. Um, okay, listeners, before we begin, I have to tell you, <clears throat> Anthony is the only per I like if you are a guest on the show, then you know I always give you the questions beforehand so you have at least a little bit of time to process, maybe write some things down, think about what you want to say. This is the only guest so far. I said, do you want me to send you the questions? He said, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I said, okay, are you? He's like, yes. Then a week went by. I said, okay, I can send you the question. He's like, no, I don't want him. I don't want to hear him. So these answers are going to be very spontaneous because... That is how he prefers life to be. Yes. Which is good. I, yes. If I had had the questions beforehand, I probably would have over, <laughs> overthunked them. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been thinking, well, what should I say to that one? And I would have been playing it around in my head. And then when it got to this moment in time, which we are in, just a moment in time, mm-hmm. I would have probably been, it would have been too premeditated and it would have come out a little bit staid and stale. This way, with the spontaneity of life, whatever comes up, and who knows, I might refuse to answer your questions. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I might say, I refuse to answer that question. How dare you ask me? And I'll have the spontaneity of saying that. <laughs> you could just say, next question, please. Next question, please. <laughs> well, the first question is really easy. Okay. Where are you from, and how did you first get involved in the arts? That is the most complex question you can ask somebody. No, it is not. Where, where are you from? Yeah, where did you grow up? Well, the, where I grew up. So well, where you are from is a very different question. Okay. So where I grew up was I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up outside of Washington in McLean, Virginia, through high school, then went to, then pretty much lived all over the country in different, different aspects, uh, different parts of the country. But where you are from... I think is a deeply spiritual question mm. that people really have to look at. Like, where are they from? Where do they source things from? What do they belong to? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a, where you're from is a question of belonging, where, where, where you're rooted in and where, what you're rooted in. Mm-hmm. So where I'm from is like spiritually is a place that's connected to this place, but it's definitely not here. I've always okay. looked at this place as a passing through place. So my, my identity of home and where I was born, all that stuff has not held a lot of weight for me in my life because mm-hmm. I kind of look at this world. I look at everyone. In a sense, we're all refugees, I think. We're all, we're all dislocated from some other. We've all come from other places before this incarnation, before this life, and we're just passing through this reality, mm-hmm. and we're going to end up somewhere else. So I've always looked at like, I mean, I love my home. Don't get me wrong. And my parents provided me a great home and I deeply appreciated the things that were physically given to me. But at the same time, I was always aware at a young age that what I was seeing in front of my eyes was not the whole picture. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes makes total sense. So then how did you get involved in the arts? 
I got involved in the arts because I grew up in a house where it was all around me. Basically, my mother was a lover of arts. She had a gr- she had an aunt who was my great aunt, who was a professional artist in New York. Her name was Aunt Winnie, uh, Winifred Murray. She was very interesting woman, very empowered. She was living in Manhattan in the 1940s as a professional artist. She started as a graphic designer and uh, was doing illustrations for all the fashion magazines. Now, Winnie was incredibly independent. This was a man's world at the time. Mm -hmm. It was dominated by men, uh, the arts, the illustration world, the the visual arts world, and she made a life for herself in Manhattan and was fiercely independent and made an impression, a huge impression on me and my four other siblings. I was the youngest of five, so Winnie in the summer would come down to D.C., Virginia, right outside of D.C., where I lived, and she would paint portraits of us. She, she would take like a month or two to get away from the city and come down to visit. And so the smell of oil paint, she's painting oils, and she was incredibly eccentric. She <laughs> told us stories about all these Russians she was hanging out with in New York, and she loved the Russians and, and all the Russian artists that were living in Manhattan at the time. And so as a, like I was experiencing this at three or four or five years old, I, like I said, I was the youngest of five kids. My mother was dragging me around to museums um, when I was three or four. Couldn't comprehend anything at the time because I was too young. But then when I hit about seven, eight or nine, what intrigued me when I was three, four and five, I would go to museums and what fascinated me were people looking at the artwork. It wasn't the artwork. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at people, and I, I could see people were really engaged, and they were looking at, I was looking at their face, and I said, well, there, obviously something's going on here. They're mm-hmm. focused, they're looking, they have different expressions, they're meditative. And so I knew there was something that they were looking at that was working on these deep levels. And then I find that finally clicked on, in with me when I got a little bit older, like 10 or 11. I had some aha moments, like at the National Gallery of Art, where mm-hmm. I was, you know, I would say transformative experiences with art at an early age, looking at paintings, listening to music. Um, We had a neighbor of ours, and they were, uh, Rufus was a good friend of mine, and Edward, their aunt, came from Peru, was a classically trained pianist, and I was six years old, and she was visiting them right across the street. And Rufus said, well, come on over. She's playing, you know, trained classical pianist and Mm -hmm. was playing the piano. You know, that's a moment I'll never forget walking into that room and hearing, just listening to her play for an hour, you know, and six years old, totally being hypnotized by it. So the amazing, I've always found the amazing thing about art is that people, when they see something like that, they never forget it. It stays with them their whole life, whether it's four years old or 40 years old. You know, if you ask people if they've seen a performance or a stage performance, you know, 10 years ago, like, like a Broadway musical or something, they'll know exactly Mm-hmm. where they were, what they were doing, who they were with, what they ate before this performance, what they did after the performance, and it was 12 years ago. And you ask them about something that happened 12 years, like, I don't remember that. You know? <laughs> so I, I knew that art had sort of, at an early age, this transformative power to really transport people from their day-to-day life, from their... and. But the transport, going back to the original thing, of like, like where you were from, I think art is a reminder that we're here to travel, that we're all just sort of traveling. Because I think great art takes you from one place and puts you in another place. You go through this, mm-hmm. it's like a travel. 
Yeah. It's like a journey of some kind. Like a portal. Yeah. It's like a portal, a journey, a travel, and it's a reminder of like that's what this life is too. It's a microcosm of this bigger thing that we're all in. Yes. And I, from the many stories that you've told me, you have lived all over the country as I have. And so you're like, oh, yeah, that one time I was in Hollywood or that one time I was doing it. So I I think, would you talk a little bit about your Hollywood days and how you ended up there? Because I think that is very cool. So, yeah, when I went to, I, so basically my own art thing started when I was a young person, like 12, 13. I loved to write poetry. Then I got into high school. I I loved English literature, Mm -hmm. got to college, continued literature and journalism. So I always loved to write it. And I was painting at the time too, but when I graduated, I was about 23, I was writing, I wanted to write screenplays because I wrote a lot of short stories and people were saying, wow, these are pretty good short stories. They might be, make good movies. Mm-hmm. So I flew out to California just on a visit. I visited Los Angeles for 10 days and it was so beautiful out there. The light was different. Everything was about it was so different. Uh, the ocean was beautiful. I was in Santa Monica near the ocean. I went down to Malibu. And I just knew I had to be out there. So I came back. Two weeks later, I moved out and was working. I got a job but through some connections. Uh, I was reading uh, screenplays, scripts, uh, for Wendy Feinerman, who is a producer at uh, Tri- uh, TriStar Pictures. And so basically, I'd, get, I'd go there once a week. I'd go to the uh, studio at TriStar in Culver City on the lot, and I'd go up to her offices. I'd meet with her. They'd give me like two or three scripts a week. I would read the film scripts uh, and write two-page synopsis. So they just wanted a summary because they get so many scripts. They just want like a – they can't read them all. Mm-hmm. So they hire, people like, they hire people like me. So I read it, gave them a two-page synopsis, and at the end, you give them a one-paragraph uh, critical analysis of it. So f- from my perspective, whether I thought it's a good movie, it's a bad movie, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and I was good at it because I wrote short stories. So I was very good at condensing things because I was used to writing short stories and making, you know. So Wendy really liked me. I worked there. And at the time when I started, they were th- the first script that they showed me. They said, Go read this. So I, I took it home and I read it. And I wrote the synopsis, and they read that they go, it's a great synopsis, spot on. But we, and they go, we want to talk to you about your, your critical analysis of it. So just brace yourself. And the <laughs> audience out there, brace yourself. I'm going to go. So this particular movie, I thought was the most subversive movie ever made, one of the most subversive. And I said, this is really, really horrible messaging that you want to give to the public. Now, the script, and Wendy Feinerman looked at me, and she goes, well, that's interesting. Uh, Tom Hanks attached himself to this three months ago within two hours of seeing the script. I said, that's, I said, I don't know. I knew nothing about, I don't know anything about, I'm just looking at it from a literature critique. Yeah. It was Forrest Gump. (laughs) Now, and they go, what do you, what do you think's horrible about it? I said, well, let's take the main character, Forrest Gump. Mm -hmm. You know. For lack of a better word, he's what's mentally challenged. If you just want to say, I'm going to say it. Even my, my daughter would get mad at me. Never say stupid. Right. But he's, in the movies, he's portrayed as stupid. Yes. 
So it takes place in the 1960s, which was a very formative age, what was this country was going through with the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. which was a corrupt war, basically. You had social change going on with, with African America, Martin Luther King, Black Panthers, and then a lot of things were going on. And I think it really diminished what was going on. And the message that I came with it was basically, if you cut it down to its core, the message that it was giving was, if you, if, you're, if you don't question authority, which Forrest Gump doesn't, mm -hmm. he's told, told what to do and he does it to perfect, don't question authority, be stupid, you'll go up to the top. Mm -hmm. You'll go to the top, just like Forrest Gump went to the top. Yep. And the character in the movie that ends up dying of AIDS mm -hmm. and the degenerate, portrayed as the degenerate, yeah. was the woman. Mm -hmm. um, who was out there protesting, and I just th thought it really belittled. It sends the wrong message, yeah. which is which is the 60s really were about questioning authority, civil disobedience, and again, that war that they was being portrayed was the Vietnam War, and that war was totally corrupt. Now, some people, and so for years, I, I would say this to people who love the movie, and they would say, well, I never thought of it that way, which is fine. And I can see other people's point of view. It's about Forrest, who's this redeemable character. Mm -hmm. But someone finally wrote about it in The Village Voice about 10 years ago, wrote a critique of it in very much the way I'd seen that movie. And that's what I thought was subversive about it. And I think it's subversive because it's telling people not to question authority, don't be intelligent, mm -hmm. just follow the rules and you'll go far. Now, I don't... Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I've never thought about it like that. Well, and again, the movie hadn't been made yet. Mm -hmm. um, Wendy Fireman was nice enough to say, I can see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'd, I had come out of an era where my older siblings had sort of caught a whiff of the 60s. But my parents, you know, the, the Vietnam War, I wasn't, didn't grow up in that era. But I was in my young enough to... When I was young, I knew that the Vietnam what it was about mm -hmm. and obviously it was a tragic war I had a summer job one time as a landscaper where I was hanging out at lunchtime with all these engineers it was at Tyson's Corner Virginia mm -hmm. and I had a landscaping job but for lunch we'd get in go to this building where all the engineers who were main, maintaining the buildings and whatever would have lunch and they were all Vietnam vets and the stories I heard them tell were just mind-blowing and they knew it was a corrupt war and, they, and some of them had disabilities and, and had friends that had died in that war. So I just thought it really belittled a lot of what was going on there. Even the, even the things where, you know, Forrest Gump is talking to the president and he's talking to the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt your part. I just thought it was so, it just, is, it just made me cringe a little bit. Yeah. But that's my thing. But that's my Hollywood experience. So I, I kept reading screenplays. I had a really good time there. Um, and like everything, I just I just said it was time to go. And, right. so, and so I, I felt a lot of my life I felt has been like an archaeological study where I just sort of <laughs> like I sort of, sort of look at things and what there's and I go from place to place and I kind of curious as to see what what's going on. Yeah. More, uh, anthropology huh. is a better word, like mm -hmm. an anthropologist, sort of. How many, how many states have you been to? <clears throat> the only states that I have not been to that I really want to go to are the Dakotas. Mm -hmm. I want to see the Black Hills of Dakota. I've not been to the Grand Canyon. Um, the states that I have not been to, 
parts of Texas I would like to see. I've seen all the Southwest. I've seen the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, all the East Coast. Midwest I've seen, upper Midwest, lower Midwest, been mm -hmm. to Tennessee, so most of it. But I'd like to go to the Dakotas. I have only passed through the Dakotas, like on, on a tour bus with minimal stops. So I haven't, I haven't really seen them, like I've, but just sort of passing through. Did on, you see on, the Black Hills? No. Uh -uh. That's what I want to see. Yeah. I'd like to see that part of the country. Yeah. In all of your travels, has anyone ever given you like a really good piece of life advice? Like what would you what would you what would you tell the kids today? What would you tell your own daughter? Like good life sage life advice. And also, and here's the next part of the question, how can you apply it to being an artist? That's a very good question. Thank you. I came, <laughs> I came up with them. Well, God, I, I, it's funny how my mind works because I, I, I initially <laughs> thought of a couple of things. Um, it I can think, be more than one. It doesn't have to be one. Well, the, the one that's sticking with me is I used to go to the Greyhound bus station to take the bus from D.C. to Richmond when I was going to college down there. And I met this woman who was an ex-convict and she was kind of she was kind of crazy <laughs> but I was hanging out and she was talking to me and we were talking for about an hour and finally but she for finally I said well what did they what did they what, what did you she served like eight years for killing her husband murder is this too heavy for this uh, <laughs> no no I was gonna say oh she killed her husband well that makes perfect sense to me <laughs> So she was saying, and she was saying because, the, and I said, I said, and again, I was 18 years old. She was probably early 30s. And she just told you all of this? Yeah, we were just, she, and she was, she was slightly manic. You know, yeah. I could tell she was talking very yeah. quick, but at the same time, she wasn't bullshitting. <laughs> she, she, I could tell that she was, and I said to her, I said, well, how, what did you do? She goes, well, I, I murdered my husband. I said, why? And she goes, because she, he cheated on me. Mm-hmm. And I said, how did he cheat? She, he, she said financially and, and was with another man. Mm. And so initially what I went back to, there's an old blues song called Frankie, uh, Frankie and Johnny, and it's about this couple. And, no, Frankie and Albert. It's, about, it's an old blues song. It's about a couple and the, the woman shoots, him, shoots the lover down because he's fooling around on the side. Mm -hmm. and, and she goes... She goes, looking back, I think I'd, pr I, I'd probably do it again, she said. She goes, but, but if I really thought about it, I'd like to be able not to do it again. Mm. And that sort of stuck with me because it was sort of like my brain was going, she was saying, definitely if, if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. But if, but if I could help myself from not doing it, I probably wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I, I realize at an early age, humans have these impulses. We all have these impulses. And, you know, I went through a young, when I was young, I went through a jealousy thing with someone, and, <laughs> and I didn't even know I was jealous. You know, and my, my uncle came along and said, Anthony, you're jealous. I didn't even know what jealousy was. And, and he was an Irish guy. I go, I'm not jealous. He goes, you're totally jealous. You're, you're losing your mind. Be <laughs> because someone I'd been dating was going out with, and that we'd broken up and was going out with someone else mm -hmm. that I knew. 
and I and even though we weren't together anymore, I was it was blowing my mind, mm-hmm. blowing my circuits. And my uncle told, taught me what jealousy was, which was basically he put it in a term like this. He goes, Anthony, you're, you're assuming what they're experiencing together is what you experienced with that person. It's not. And I'd been assuming what that what she was experiencing with this other guy is what she was had experienced with me. And when he said that, I realized, oh wow, he's right. So I was I was upset because I was thinking, oh, they have the same thing that I had with her, you know, like something was being stolen from me. And when he told me that, I realized, okay, that's jealousy is when you think someone's experiencing something that you've experienced or want to experience, and that doesn't work that way. What they're experiencing is probably very different yeah. than how you would be doing it. So that was one life lesson. Another life lesson um, was, was I'll go back to the Hollywood thing, and I think I told you the story. I, I met an, a woman, her name was Dorothy Hoyt. She lived in Santa Cruz, so I moved from Los Angeles up to Santa Cruz. She was in her 90s. We became friends. I was helping her out around her house doing yard work, and and she was married to a very famous Hollywood actor whose name was John Hoyt. And uh, it was a 1950s actor. It was in some big movies. I don't remember the names, but Dorothy met him. He had already passed away when I met Dorothy. She was in her 90s, but they got married when they were in their 60s and were married 20 years before he passed. But when they met, Dorothy was an intellectual. Uh, he was a big movie star already, living in Hollywood and leading this Hollywood life of the big actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the equivalent probably to like a Tom Hanks yeah. today. You know, he was known. He was in some big movies. And so Dorothy said, you know, John, I'm an intellectual. I know this. And she got a peek of the Hollywood life. She saw the crowds she was running with, very much loved him and says, John, I'm really not interested in your business. And I know you have to go to these parties and do this stuff. Doesn't interest me at all. You stay on your side of the fence. I'll stay on my side of the fence and we'll be fine. I'm an intellectual. I'd rather be reading books and hanging out with intellectuals than running around with star, you know, movie stars and starlets. Playing, playing the game. Yes, playing the game, exactly. Mm-hmm. So they had two children, led a great life. And so when I met Dorothy, I t- had just left Hollywood and come off this thing. I'd never written a screenplay and I was thinking Hollywood is kind of, I, I was very idealistic when I went there. And I realized it wasn't for me. And so I was talking to Dorothy about Hollywood. I said, well, you know, and I was so naive at the time. And I said, Dorothy, you know, well, there are lots of talented people in Hollywood. And she said, absolutely, there are lots of talented people. And I said, and I said, very intelligent people. She goes, yeah, there are lots of intelligent people. And I said, well, and then I said something, well, well, the most intelligent people and the smartest, they make it to the top. That's what makes them successful. And she started to laugh. (laughs) And she goes, I'll never forget. She said, oh, dear boy, you really don't understand what you were in when you were in Hollywood, do you? I go, what do you mean? And again, I was 20-something at the time, my late 20s. She goes, I'll tell you what Hollywood is about. And it's really simple. And how people make it or don't make it. And she goes, she goes, are there intelligent people in Hollywood? Absolutely. Are there smart people? Absolutely. Are there really beautiful people? Absolutely. Are there people that are physically not attractive? Absolutely. She goes, there's every type of person in Hollywood. But everyone that's successful in Hollywood, all the stars that you see in front of the camera, they can be as fat as Orson Welles or as fat as Jack Black. 
you might think they're ugly or they could be as beautiful as Paul Newman. She says they all play one trick, that they have one trick up their sleeve and if they don't play this game, they'll never make it, no matter how smart or beautiful. I go, what is it? And she goes, it's body worship. <laughs> and I looked at her and go, what do you mean body worship? She goes, what stars do, and they have to do it consciously, they have to get people to worship their body, pure and simple. Doesn't matter if their body's fat, small, this way, that way. And they demand that, and the people around them do worship the bodies. It's a body-worshiping um, industry. Mm -hmm. And she says, if you don't have that trick, and if you don't enjoy that, you have to enjoy it, you have to be aware that you're doing it, and that you have to be aware that you need people to worship your body, or you ain't going to make it. Wow. Whether you're Kathy Lee Gifford, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you look like. And when she said that, and she goes, is that something that interests you, Anthony? And I looked at her and go, God, no. <laughs> I said, it was so far away from my way of thinking. Yes. To me, I said, that's sort of obscene. She goes, of course it's obscene. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, it, it, it's, just, it's so superficial. <laughs> yes, that's what she was saying. It's so superficial. And, but, the, but then again, yeah. she says, this is not to say they're not really intelligent people, but you have to have that in your toolbox or you're not going to you're not going to be be able to sit in that system. You're mm -hmm. not going to be able to go on the runway. You have to get into it, she says. And if yeah. you're not into that, you're going to get bored or they're going to spit you out or you're not going to make it. Yeah. So it was interesting. Wow. That is interesting. It's a very fascinating way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. She, that she would, she would cut it down to that essence. Like that's the one thing, the that, one thing. that they all do. <laughs> yeah. I could see it, though. I think it is. I, I totally could see that. Well, and it also makes me wonder, is Broadway like that? Um, yeah, I mean, Broadway and Hollywood, two completely different worlds. Right. I would say a little bit, absolutely. Probably. I think it's definitely getting a lot better, um, you know, in terms of diversity and casting and all shapes and sizes and all ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And um, it's definitely getting better, but there are always levels upon levels of of getting better because yes. because theater the whole point of the, well there's many points of theater but one of them is to represent the human condition right and so if you don't see yourself represented on stage then how can you feel like how is it relatable to you right how can you connect and as an actor how can you be like oh well i can make it in this career because i saw someone who looked like me on stage right it's all about relatability and connection and... Um. <clears throat> but you have to enjoy that attention. Yes. You have to enjoy people saying, God, they're so <laughs> great. They're so be you know, beautiful and whatever conjures up in their mind, you know. Yeah. And you have to love that attention and be able to hook. She said, she used the word hook. Mm -hmm. You have to, and you know, there's, there's that phrase in songwriting. Does the song have a good hook? Right. You know, playwrights, I'm sure... What's, what hooks people in? It can mm -hmm. be a gimmick, it can be a hook. You know, what gets them, you know, and that's, and so there's, there's a bright, there's a light side to that, I think, that can be fun, mm -hmm. but then there could also be the shadow side to that, which mm -hmm. can be, and she saw both. She saw the underbelly, she saw the, the, in front of the cameras, Hollywood, and behind the scenes, and she basically said it was like, again, this was, she was experiencing this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. So this was a different time, but she said it was just a, you know, a mass orgy, basically. <laughs> she really did. Well, she that did. sounds about right. You know, she said there was all this, you know, and it just, yeah. it, she goes, it didn't interest her. And yeah. She, and she goes, so, 
but so there's that quality. That's why I like podcasts. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's why I've always loved radio, because what it forces the person to do when they're listening to a podcast. So who's ever listening to this right now, they're hearing my voice, hearing your voice. They may have met you, but they haven't seen my, a visual of me. But So they're conjuring up what I look like in their mind. Maybe not, but they might be having ideas like, oh, I want, you know, they yeah. are forming this picture, which I think is great, yeah. which has nothing to do with me. So I like that. I do too. Yeah. I do too because I definitely, as a woman in show business and as a woman in the world, and you know, there's, I feel like there's so many more expectations put upon us as to how you have to look. Yes. And in terms of wearing makeup, like, oh, I very rarely do I put on makeup because I just don't have the time to, right. to do it. I'm like, I, that 20 minutes could be better used doing, I could make a hundred, a list of a hundred things yes. that I could. what's the word like I would rather have that 20 minutes to get 20 extra minutes of sleep or 20 minutes to read a book or 20 minutes to work on a podcast like than like trying to paint my face yes (laughs) to look like a clown or or to look like some better prettier version of me it feels inauthentic to me now do I wear makeup absolutely do I like you know pose my selfies like oh I like put on a face today but some most of the time I'm like I don't feel like putting on a face I just want to be myself Right. I want to be honest. I want to be genuine. Yeah. So, and also men, it is not really, it's not expected. It's like, oh, men just show up how they are. Oh, yeah. how nice. Yes. <laughs> they, they can have stubble on their beards. Yeah. They can have the, the messy hair. The Yeah, there's more leniency, definitely. I mean, the pressures are, are, put, are yeah. not put on men as, as no. nearly as intense as women. And I have an eight-year-old daughter, so my wife is very attuned to what she'll be going through as a tween and a teen and already is going through as an eight eight and a half year old like it's it's weird like my my wife picks up things around our daughter in public that I wouldn't pick up on that she picks up on Mm -hmm. that are not not appropriate let's put it that way how people might even be looking at her my 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 wife has a radar out for that stuff. Oh, absolutely. You know, and and just sort of like, what is that person? You know. Yeah, you know? It's, it's like the mother's intuition. Yes. You just know things. Right. You're not really sure how you know, but you you know them, and right. you can feel them. Yes. And you're like something's not right here, or yep. something's off. Yes. For sure. Oh, me too. Yeah. Me too. I think one of the best ways to get in touch with your emotional depth and your intuition is to become a mother. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> You'll find out quickly. Yes. yes. Oh, there's such a, so much more. Yeah. Okay, so this obviously is a podcast about performers and theater and people in the arts. Right. Would you talk a little bit about your performance art? Also, uh, he has brought a drum with him today. <laughs> so if you would like to use the drum. The drum. In- <laughs> well, like I said, my 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 experience with with performing was basically like I said earlier I started as a writer and then when I was in California actually when I stopped writing screenplays I was still writing poetry and stories and I was introduced to a musician when I lived in Santa Cruz and the musician read my poems and he said you know these these could be songs have you ever thought about about a singing and, and, and writing songs. So I started writing, like doing the singer-songwriter thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Wrote my own song, acoustic guitar, was playing um, 
gigs, cafes, you know, small clubs, cafes, was in a duo called the Earbenders, but playing my original material and enjoying it, but, you know, was limited in my, uh, you know, limited in my singing capabilities. It was in a folk music mode, so you don't have to be, I mean, folk singers are amazing, I think, because they're so nuanced. But, you know, I didn't have like an operatic voice or anything, but was getting gigs, you know, was being fairly successful. Uh, the first time I got up on stage was just mind blow The first time I had to perform was just terrifying. And again, I was in my late 20s at the time. Um, so once I got through that, I was able to start performing more regularly and more comfortably. And then I moved back east and I just started getting, I started exploring some of the um, different artists that I liked growing up that would take on stage personas. Someone like a David Bowie who went through different, you know, and he was much smarter than I was because, you know, obviously he had done it for 30 years before I was even thinking about it. But he took on different personas and through the songs. And so I developed this character that I started um, playing out around Washington, D.C. And the name of the character was Sri Baba Marley Jones. And it was in this particular vernacular that was an accent that was sort of Irish, uh, Jamaican, Irish, Jamaican, and just a whole conglomerate of things. It was like a mishmash of things. But it, it sort of caught on. Mm -hmm. I had my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> Andy Warhol, I think, was right when he said everyone's going to have their 15 minutes of fame. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting thing when you have that moment. Um, when it happens, I think what happens in the moment, your adrenaline either kicks in and says, I want more, give me more of it. Or it goes, okay. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. So what happened to me, I'd been playing around in this particular <laughs> mode. So I, I didn't have much of a costume. I would wear a hat, no makeup, same face, but would, would, would sing like Sri Baba Morley Jones. Yeah. And so I played gigs around D.C. And so one night, uh, Alice, who was a musician friend of mine, and gave me my first gig at the Galaxy Hut in, in uh, Arlington, Virginia, she said, oh, Anthony, I'm going down to the Black Cat. I got an extra ticket. You want to go hear this group? And it was a weeknight. I said, sure. And so we walked into the black hat and alice was and is a well-known figure in the music community because she's well connected she's got a really good band and she knows a lot of the people that come through dc so we walked into the club and everyone turned to us so everyone's back was to us and we walked into the club and one person turned around and started yelling and then all, all of a sudden everyone was turning around and yelling at the top of their lungs <laughs> And Alice and I, and I looked over to Alice, and Alice starts laughing hysterically. And I'm there like a deer in the headlights. I couldn't comprehend what they were saying. Mm -hmm. So this is, my, this is my 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. It didn't even last 15 minutes. It was more, more like four minutes. And so they're all yelling at the top of their lungs. I, and I'm looking at Alice. She's laughing hysterically. And I looked at Alice, and I'm like, what are they saying? And Alice is like, look at me. It's like, what? What? And I, and I yell into her and I say, what are they saying? And she's trying to tell me what they're saying and she's laughing. And I'm assuming they're saying something about Alice. And she yells into my ear. She goes, they're yelling Shri Baba. <laughs> and I couldn't make it out because I was just coming in as my normal, you know, yeah. just as my who I am. And I walk, and all of a sudden they're all looking at me yelling at the top of their lungs, Shri Baba, Shri Baba, Shri. And I, yeah. I was like, oh my God. We went to, and they settled down after we sat down and people were coming over. It was weird. And we went, we went to the show. But after that, 
I closed it down. It was too weird. Because people actually thought I was that person. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's the weird thing that I think actors can live with. Yeah. You know, that, that's part of acting. But I think it's different when you get a part, maybe. I created this thing. Yeah. You know, this was you, my own Frankenstein's you, you, you created this character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is so cool. Do you have, like, a bit of a song that you'd like to sing or Should anything? Bob, let's see. Well, yeah, let's see. yeah. What do you got? Well, I really got to get it. It's not a song per se, everyone. It's a, it's a way of life. So it's, it's a, this is about my spaceship. It's not a groove, but you can move. It goes, so when my spaceship landed in this big old world, I found a great big oyster in a long string of pearls. First I walked on the Earth's garden, and then I saw them build a man-made wall. I climbed up to the top of that man-made wall and then began my fall. We're living in the alien nation, living in the alien time, living on the foggy bottom. I am going to lose my mind. Slow down, Mr. Driver. Here comes warp speed nine, living in the alien nation, living in the alien time. So I would talk like this for hours on end. People said I went into a trance, I tell you. Alice, my best friend, said you become a different person, Anthony, when you go into Sri Baba mode. So you can hear it's a little bit Irish, a little bit maybe a little English, a little bit Jamaican in there, but it's a stream of consciousness called Sri Baba Mole Jones. The kids love it because it, I tell them if they say Sri Baba Mole Jones fast five times, it will change the molecular structure of their brain waves. And they do, and they all start giggling like little geese. And it does change the brain waves. <laughs> so I did this persona, this performance many, many times in Washington, D.C. People would come up after me, and I'm a white man. I'm as white as a ghost, as you can see. And they'd say, Sri Baba. And they talked to me like I was really Sri Baba. And maybe I'm thinking I am Sri Baba. Because if you go back into the evangelical Christian faith, they talk about speaking in tongues. Have you heard this? Yes. You've heard about speaking in tongues. Yes. So a good friend of mine said, well, maybe you're just speaking in tongues. Maybe you've hit a five, high spiritual frequency, and Sri Baba Mali Jones is speaking through you. So things speak through us. And this is very interesting about art and acting. So if you go into these art, like the, like the Meryl Streeps, they say that she goes into a trance. The Robert De Niro's... Who's the great actors? Name another actor. Who are they? Name an actress. <laughs> Who are they? Who are they? I was going to say Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Yes. Ja maybe a Jack Nicholson or yes. some of these actors, they go into a trance. Is it all a trance? Is it all a dance? Is it all a spiritual awakening? I don't know, but this was Sri Baba Mali Jones. And I had a group called the Heavenly Peace Ensemble. And you could not see them. They were imaginary beings behind me. And I said, this is my ensemble here tonight. And everyone said, where are they? I said, you cannot see them. They're the heavenly peace ensemble. They will work on you in different ways. You will not see them. So that was it. You have to tell me to stop because I will keep on going. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, yes, yes, and, and yes. Come back to us, Anthony Brock. Anthony Brock, please. I'm here in the room. Please return to us. This is me. <laughs> And sometimes I'm walking around with my eight-year-old, who I've, I've done Sri Baba in front of her. And, she, and, and sometimes when I'm feeling really low, she goes, where is Sri Baba? I'm like, yeah, where did he go? Because <laughs> I'm much happier when I'm doing Sri Baba. Uh-huh. See, you are a natural performer. Well, I, I, that, if, it, if I have a, yeah, I like performing. Mm -hmm. But I don't mm -hmm. like all the, the noise around performing. Does mm. that make sense? Yes. All the, mm -hmm. I don't know, all the... The setup or something. I don't yes, know. Yes, like like the lifestyle of it, like everything yeah. that goes around, yeah. sort of the fame of it, or the, oh, yeah, or yeah. the craziness of it, or yeah, yeah, any of that stuff. I, I totally would. get that I, because it's a lot. 
It's a lot. Yes. Yes. And and at a certain point, it, it seems. I love. I really like the Sri Baba because, and I still do it once in a while. I did mm -hmm. like Alice asked me to do something about four years ago, and I did it, and it was fun. And um, there was a very famous writer uh, named Borges, uh, Argentinian writer, and he became very, very famous worldwide. And he wrote a very short story called Borges and Myself, and it's very. It's like a four-page short story, and he goes, he goes, I'm just the guy that wakes up every morning and. Buenos Aires or where he was living, I, you know, I pour my coffee and I pet my cat and look at my watch and say, oh, God, I got to go get more cat food. <laughs> That's me. And then it goes, Borges is the person people address as I walk down the street, mm -hmm. as the great writer. As the, and he was. He was a great writer. He was nationally acclaimed. And in Argentina, writers are considered, you know, gods. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like football players, you know, they're like... You know, they're really held in high esteem. And he goes, and Borges is the person that walks down the street that everyone says, oh, you're a genius. And I'm just a little guy that goes home at night and has all these insecurities and just wants to go to bed with a hot chocolate. <laughs> so, you know, that was the gist of it. And so he's talking about that we have all these dimensions to ourselves. And that's important to remember all of them. The really mundane part that of like, you know, mm -hmm. I just want a hot chocolate and go to bed, you know, and that's that's great, that part. And then there's these other aspects, other dimensions that we have that we can go into higher frequencies and create what we want to create, and those are important too. Yeah. To, but I would say that Borges would say, and I would say as well, is that it gets scary when an actor or an artist forgets those different dimensions in themselves. When they become the thing they've created, mm -hmm. that persona, whatever you want to call it, right. and they buy into it, that can be dangerous, both as a creative artist, because you mm -hmm. box yourself in and you think you're that one thing, and you're, you are that one thing, but we all have lots of different dimensions. So the great artists are always aware, and that's why actors, I think, are really great, because a great actor gets to play all these different roles. Mm -hmm. You know, they get to play the wise man or the fool or the murderer or the nice guy and so they get to try on all these different hats right and that's the great thing about art and, and that people can experience that and or writing or whatever right so i think that's important yeah but it's the people that think they're the thing that they've created can that can get a little like it's a brand almost you know they're branded and who wants to be branded no one no one not even the cows <laughs> No one wants to be branded. Oh, get that brand away from me. But it's hard not to because you have obviously in the in theater and the, and movies, you know, they brand those actors. Yep. There are only certain roles they're going to get because they've been put into that box. And some of the actors are smart enough to know how to get out of it mm -hmm. and keep it moving. I don't know if there's any. What do you think of the great actors today? That's a tough call. I I don't know. I tend to like things that are old. Well, that's what I'm saying. Maybe the old stuff is better than old that. music, old movies. Yes. Old. Yeah. I think I think some of the newer stuff is not as great as yes. some of the, especially when we're talking about music and songwriting. Yes. I think the old music is way better than the majority of new stuff. Right. But I listen to a lot of musicals, and so that's like every genre of music. Like, I would much, and it's also about, it's telling a story through music. Yes. It's not just 
I don't know, creating music because it's catchy or because it's popular. Right. or That's for the stage. Right, yeah. right. I would much rather hear a story yes. as, as told through song and dance and, and then just a song, just to hear a catchy song. Right. So, but I agree. Yeah. I think storytelling is so important, which is why we're on this podcast yes, today is, is to tell all of these stories. Yes. Okay, the one thing that we have yet to talk about is the Why Arts Center. The why? Why? <laughs> we haven't even talked about it yet. Yes. So That's where I, we're sitting right now. That's what we are recording this episode right now in the music room at the Why Arts Center. So, would you tell our listeners a little bit about this crazy place. This, the Y Art Center is in historic downtown Frederick, right in the heart of it on uh, 115 East Ch- Church Street. Yeah, come visit. Yeah, come on in. It's, it's a beautiful building. Basically, the, the doors to this building were opened a year ago last June. It, it's a historic building. It was uh, the YMCA of Frederick and the Osherman Foundation collaborated together to restore the building. So it, it went through a, a major renovation and uh, the Osherman Foundation has been kind enough, they own the building, that they've been kind enough to let us pretty much have the building under the condition that we run arts programming. That's the vision of the building. Mm-hmm. So we're one of many arts organizations in downtown Frederick. Uh, so we're collaborating with them as well. But what we offer here is we offer dance, theater, music, um, and the visual arts. And we've been, you know, we, we opened during the pandemic, so numbers have been low, and we've been basically starting from the ground up, basically. Uh, we just opened up Gallery 115 at the Y, which is a contemporary art gallery on the first floor here. Uh, and we have a curator that has been, uh, Rula Jones, that has put on some fabulous exhibitions, contemporary art exhibitions that have been very well received. Uh, we have an artist in residence program. We have two professional artists upstairs that have a micro gallery of their work. And these are working artists in Frederick and they have their full-time studios here. We're gonna expand that program. Uh, we have the Y dance program that Sarah has now, our dance coordinator, administrator, administrator, director, boss, CEO. I'll give you all the titles for the dance program. Hey, I'm, I'm just a teacher. <laughs> <I'm> just, a, <laughs> just a teacher and lover of dance and the arts. She's going to be putting on all the, <laughs> she's going to be growing the program. Yes. And she's obviously has an amazing background in theater and, and putting on productions. And so it, it's, it's an interesting time, obviously, with the pandemic. And mm-hmm. now we got the Delta variant and all this other stuff coming into the Play, but we've we've kept our doors open. Uh, the YMCA is a strong Frederick County organization yeah. that has kept its doors open, and I think have the community support and wherewithal to to withstand that first impact of the pandemic. And I think whatever else is thrown at, at us, I think we'll be able to move forward positively. So 2022 is going to be a great year. Uh, we have an artist from Brooklyn who's going to rent a studio space out for two months. He's a professional artist, so he, he needed a larger space to get some amazing work put together for exhibitions he's got up in New York. So Frederick, downtown Frederick is an amazing place because mm-hmm. it's, it's everyone, there's a lot of art, creative energy down here. There's a lot of creative energy on the street. There's a lot of creative energy in the, on Market Street which with small business owners. Obviously, small business owners are very creative in how they run their businesses. So it's a real hub 
of, of mm -hmm. art and and when they formed the historic district they they made it as uh, an art district because they knew that the arts attract people from all over this area and it keeps the vitality of Frederick life so we're part of a mm -hmm. of a great great uh, network of art organizations downtown yes but come on by and and visit anytime yes and one of the things that I believe the most in and I believe so strongly about is quality arts education. Yes. And so that is... Absolutely. It is such a necessary and needed thing, I think, for all children. Yep. Um, they need a place to be creative. They need, a, they need a positive outlet because artists are... Well, pe humans, doesn't matter if you're an artist, but we're very emotional beings. And so we need a positive place to channel that emotion into something, whether it's a dance or a play or a painting or um, writing a song or, you know, we, we need, so I know for me, like the arts have, has saved me over and over and over and over again. Absolutely. And, they, and they've done studies on this. They've done studies with kids from, you know, the age of zero through seven that are exposed to the arts at an early age. Actually, arts and physical education, they say. Physicality, which includes dancing and music yep. and obviously traditional sports so it's interesting that the why mca covers all these bases but they've determined that kids from zero to six that are exposed to physical activity and creative arts their brain development is develops and it's far ahead so a lot of these tech companies are, are a lot of the education is really focusing on early childhood education with the arts mm -hmm. there's huge emphasis on it now because they know that that it, it produces creative thinking, which produces in the workplace, any particular workplace, it creates problem solving. And actually a lot of these high tech companies, the number one thing they're looking for now, they're, they're actually hiring liberal art majors now because they need problem solvers. <laughs> they can get all the computer tech geeks, they're, they're a dime a dozen, they need people to literally be able to think creatively. Interesting. So they, they bring in these liberal arts majors who know nothing about computers or no. any of this stuff, but they say, well, this is the playing field. Yeah. Do you, what, what do you, you know, they hand them a narrative of what's going on. Yeah. And they say, well, have you, you know, and they're the problem solvers. Yeah. So have you looked over here? And they go, no, maybe we should look. <laughs> so, so it's a huge thing, the arts, yeah. Yeah. It's, and and it's, it's like I said at the beginning, it's the one thing that people... Whether they know it or not, it's the thing people value the most. Whether they, it's a movie, they, they might not even go to the theater, but they go to a movie and they remember a movie, they remember a song. And those things are poignant. Mm -hmm. And they're studying, they're actually studying the brain as to why people, you know, people's Alzheimer's can remember songs that they've sung during their life. They can't remember anything else, but they can sing the songs wow. from memory. Yeah, and they're they're looking at this as like why are these things in the arts, whether it's a performance or an opera, why do they stick in our memory so fiercely? Mm -hmm. Like why don't we forget them? Yeah, you know. Hmm. I don't know. I think I don't. because art never dies. Yeah, and it's creative. It, it's it's representational of something that's that's connected creatively. Right to something larger than ourselves, I think. That's what I think. Yeah. 
Okay, final question. Final question. I love the final. It's like the final round of those talk shows. And you will win $100,000 if you answer this question yeah, correctly. This, this is the final question on who wants to be a millionaire. Yes, it's exactly. <laughs> I don't want to be a millionaire. Get me out of here. <laughs> How do you define success? Every t- it's, it's a, a, this is a question that I'm still honestly grappling with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Bob Dylan quote in one of his songs. He says, there's no success like failure and failure's no success at all. Which always wraps around my brain because he's a great songwriter, poet. Mm-hmm. I think success has is a balance between being true to yourself and following what you want to follow that you know to be true in your heart. And that's a tricky, that's tricky business because sometimes we do things to please other people so it will reflect good back on ourselves, if that makes sense. But in our own heart, I think people know, and it's only they can be honest with themselves what they're truly here to do or to pursue even. And they have to be honest with themselves what, what they really want to pursue. <clears throat> and sometimes to really pursue what you want to pursue, you have to drop things that you've been doing or been pursuing. You have to be brave enough to say, you know what? I'm not going to pursue this even though I'm being rewarded. I just talked, interviewed someone that we're bringing on here that's a dancer. And she had a great position as a dance administrator. She had all the perks, all the benefits, everything. Everything from the outside looking in, you would say, my God, you've made it. You know, geez, that's the best of the best. You know, that's what people are gunning for. And she goes, I can't do this anymore. She wasn't being true to herself. And so she just said, she's always been a dancer and she's always done that, but she's refocusing on that. Um, So that, it takes courage takes tenacity but success I think is something so I really do view it as such a private thing that only the individual can say what their success so for me personally I would say success has been following my intuition following my different endeavors that I've done because I've wanted to do them learning from them and then knowing myself well enough to move on because I know myself well enough to know that that I need a lot of variety in life. I'd need a lot of different experience. I, I experience things experientially, and that I've, if I look back on my life, on one level I can say, no, I haven't been that successful. But on another level, I can say I've been very successful. I can say, wow, I got all these experiences. I've learned from other people, from other experiences, from traveling, and then. But we always have to constantly, I, I have to constantly say, well, now, now what do I, what do I want to define as success? Mm-hmm. I'm raising a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, which is a huge thing. I, I want to be able to, you know, say that I think we've been successful. My wife and I have been successful raising her the first eight years of her life. It hasn't been perfect. Um, but I think we've made the right choices for her creatively and uh, intellectually to nourish her. Um, so that's a great sense of feeling successful, I would say, mm-hmm. raising a child. And, but I wouldn't even want to use, it's weird because I don't even want to use that word around my child. Like, 
in terms of success, I think it runs deeper than that. If, if you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not looking at her as like, oh, we want to raise her to be successful or not, or I want to feel successful because she's grown up to be something. I think it's just, I think success is just being true to yourself. Mm -hmm. I really do. And, and, and it's a messy business. Like for myself personally, I, there are times I've been true to myself and there are other times I've not been true to myself. And I have to fess up to both and mm -hmm. say, okay, and I have to look at myself critically and say, well, why, you know, maybe I should have been more committed there, pushed through some things, and maybe there I was committed to something that I really wasn't interested in in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, life has a funny way of, you know, throwing us different things to work through. Yep. But it's, that's, it's a great question, though. It's a great question because, like we were talking about earlier, like makeup, there's superficial success. And then there's really profound success, I think. Right. That all superficially might not look successful. To, to other people. To other people. But, but like internally. Yes. It, it feels successful to you. And really, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Yes. That's right. all that matters. Right. Yeah. There's a great Iggy Pop song. If anyone knows Iggy Pop out there, listen to his song, Success. Because it is a great <laughs> song. He goes, here comes success. Here comes my Chinese rug. And it's just, it's sort of like, and he's got another song called Winners and Losers. And it's about really successful people hanging out with really unsuccessful people. And it's a great song because he says those are the two people that should be hanging out together. Hmm. You know, because they have something to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And so like if you looked at literature, like there's the court gestures. The king always had the court gesture. So you always had the powerful king or queen but there was always the fool there, the court gesture to say, hey, you know, poking at them. Yeah, you're great and mighty king. And you're also, the, the fool was supposed to, to sort of like offset that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I am 100% the court jester. Right, right. That's what I'm yes. saying. That is the role that I have often played is the fool. Right. And play the fool and then in real yeah. life people have to, it's important. That's an important role. Yeah. Anyway, well, you know what? We are just very busy over here. Lots to do. I know you've got to run to your, next, what? What to your next appointment. I've really and... babbled on. <laughs> See, you love to talk. I, we should I know. call it Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness what a treat and and delight this has been thank you so much thank you for much. for being a guest fabulous thank you for on, having on me. the pod and um you know i don't know do you ha do you have a, a great closer i got nothing today I, the great closer t let's see the great closer of today is babylon babylon oh.